What is up and welcome back to Zen Business, the show that studies health and mindfulness habits that ultra high performers use to reach the top of their industry and their craft. I'm your host, Jonathan Maxim, Managing Director at K&J Growth Hackers and founder of five digital companies. We've grown these companies to great levels and created an exciting and fulfilling life for our team members, but the truth is, it was much more challenging than we ever could have imagined. All right, now let's jump in. All right, what is up? And welcome back to Zen Business. I'm Jonathan Max, I'm your host, as you know, and I'm here with Patrick Loritz today. He is the founder at Scar CBD. They are an awesome, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. The, the product is very refined and has been built over the years of, you know, tons of product development in terms of, you know, adding essential oils and weaving all these mind, body, spirit components into uh, their CBD products, which is amazing. And uh, I'm really excited to have you here today, Patrick. How's it going, John? It's good um, to be excellent. here. So, um, yeah, I figured I'd talk to you about what I know. Um, and I'm not a professional by any means. I'm an enthusiast, but uh, <laughs> I'm into psychology, depth psychology specifically, which kind of looks at the internal and how that part of your brain works. Um, so it's how the internal interacts with the external and kind of how you can incorporate that in your life in general and business. Awesome. Well, look, you got the stage here. This is the Patrick show today. So, you know, go ahead and tell me what this concept is about. You called it the depth. Depth psychology, D-E-P-T-H. So it's probably the founder, godfather is Carl Jung. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yep. So he's kind of given the concepts of the archetypes and the way that I could understand that and portray that is probably through looking at humans in the way that we look at like wolves or dogs how naturally they're born with patterns like um you know they have a hierarchy where they sniff each other's butts and you know there's the pack leader and you know you show dominance by showing your teeth and things like that humans seem to have a nature um, internally, which um, manifests externally mm-hmm. in the same way. So humans actually have stories um, that we have that all humans have. If we look at indigenous cultures and everything, the easiest archetype to notice <laughs> all cultures have is the hero. If you look at uncontacted tribes and stuff they have hero myths the other myths that we know unanimously are like the flood um the joker or the trickster the mad king the evil stepmother and all those things um those carl jung has kind of pointed into like he's given it a cohesion and understanding now are those instinctual manifestations from human nature or are these just narratives that we've developed so looking at the fact that there's uncontacted tribes and stuff that have these stories in their myth we see that it's actually innate in humans which is very interesting learning to decipher this stuff you learn to interpret your dreams because your dreams will manifest these archetypes and Mm -hmm. if you watch if you have a really weird dream, you know, if you have a dream journal, you write them down and you will start to see these patterns. Um, and you can kind of 
work out internally what's going on with you if you have a problem or you know help you if you if you're having a success you can you'll see it being played out in these archetypes through your dreams i always knew there was a lot of significance to dreams but not many people give credit to it it's it's a little frustrating to me i'm like how, how do you guys not see the writing on the wall? Like this is, it can't be by chance that you're having like people have like teeth falling out dreams or they have mm-hmm. no pants dreams, stuff like that. It's like, mm-hmm. how do we as humans all have a similar dream narrative and like, why would, you know, where's the parallel there? How is it, you know, what's the connective tissue? Right, right, exactly. So this is something that I've been reading about for years and just started to get a grasp on. And the reason why people don't give it any credit is because you know, it's not material, it's not scientific, it's kind of woo-woo. And mm-hmm. I can completely understand what the woo-woo language, you know, the L.A. spiritual community, they are speaking in a certain language, but I don't even think they really grasp that they are speaking in, like, that language. Another way you can interpret it is left brain, right brain. Um, that's loose, but still scientifically there are there's a basis for it. Um, yeah. If, I don't know if you know of the split brain tests that they did in like the early 1900s where mm-hmm. I think they might still do it for seizures. You cut a brain in half. If one part of the brain is shut off, we know that like left brain is logic. It has our language centers. It helps us speak and stuff. And that is the one that is what we give out to the world. Um, that's the one that helps us understand the world. But the right brain is the subconscious, the unconscious, the one that um, depth psychology studies. That one's not connected to a language center in the brain. So oh. it it's part of the feeling and symbolism. And that's where our beliefs are held. So that's why it's so hard to change beliefs because you can't just talk to somebody through language and try and get them to change a belief because you have to connect with that part of the brain. So there's other ways and that's where like- They literally have to feel it. Yeah, so that's where NLP and hypnosis and things like that come into play. And those are things that I've studied as well. So I, I've i finally put together the connection between all of them and I think I can convey it to you where you can understand it pretty well. Basically, The right brain thinks in symbols, feelings, and metaphor. So if you ever want to help someone with the problem, you have to speak to them in metaphor um, through story. And that's why story, that's why movies and art and things like that are so profound. Art is symbols. And based on what you're going through in your life, you can look at it and get something different. That's where like gestalts and things like that come from. How, you know, someone could see like, sex organs or a demon or you know a butterfly in the same picture it's kind of it's speaking to your right brain so can i pause you for a second Mm -hmm. just for the listeners nlp is neuro-linguistic programming and that's where you uh, build triggers in the mind and and get to a state of flow or some state of mind through a course of actions and you can reduce those over time and then the other concept is gestalt which is a common design theory which is like the sum of all parts is greater than each individually combined. So I just want to clarify that for, for listeners who don't understand or who yeah, are new to this. But right, right. Yeah, so NLP and all those things, you can actually access the right brain, the belief system, um, through metaphor, and it's actually scientifically theta. 
So it's a brain state. There's alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and theta are the five brain states. And now we know enough that we know exactly what flow is. It's not woo-woo anymore. Um, there's oh, a so lot it's of, not just like a, a state of mind that we... I, I kind of like thought of it as a little bit placebo up to now where it's like, okay, finally I've removed all the distractions and I can be like fully focused. Right, right. So, but there is actually a distinct state you're saying right, right. for flow. So if you want to learn about flow, there's two scientists. One is helping it get in the mainstream, Stephen Kotler. Um, he has a book called Stealing Fire among a lot of other books to help you get into flow for creativity, for being elite in whatever you're trying to go through. And then it's Japanese, his name's like Mihai Chikset Mihai or something like that. He's like the original scientist. Um, but you can go if you want to dig deeper and look at them. But basically flow state is the state where your brain is between alpha and theta. So alpha is rest, relaxation, peace. It's not sleep, it's just like your chill. Mm -hmm. um, and then theta is actually where you can access the right brain and that's where that's what we're in in a dream state. I can see why meditation is so powerful because you want to calm down to the, the state where that stuff kind of like flows out. Right, it's not right. like this, um, this trying or this trying to do type of feeling that's an obstruction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, beta is our stress state. That's stress, anger, sex, and a lot of other wow. stressed ones. Um, so to transfer between meditation helps you be able to control your state. None of these states are good or bad necessarily. You know, everything has its use. Anger has its use. Obviously sex has its use and yeah. things like that. But um, to access flow, which is basically like what a master gets to where you no longer have to think about what you're doing. You just automatically do it. Um, that is that brain state. Um, so with hypnosis and NLP, hypnosis can trigger somebody. Basically hypnosis is like, you're always hypnotized by something. It's, it's just intense focus, but you can use hypnosis to implant ideas or pull things out of people and things like that. So, you know, you can use it for good or bad, mm -hmm. but hypnosis NLP uses certain language and um, certain techniques to access people for getting across something that will stick. And, and a lot of times people use it for like quitting nicotine. Yep, yep, yep. So it's mm -hmm. touching, it's touching that belief system. The way that you can do that in NLP is they're called nominalizations. Um, so you look at the brain, it's not something that is taking in the world, it's filtering out because, you know, hmm. if we took in everything, it's too much. We can't really control things. So what the brain does is it picks what's important and tells you what to focus on. Um, so the brain thinks in deletions, distortions, and generalizations. Um, you know, you you omit things that your brain thinks aren't important. You might you might distort things based on your perceptions, like oh that person was screaming at me when really the person might have just you know had an annoyed tone or something. But you really perceive it that way. Wow. And then generalizations are like oh 
you know, you have a bad experience at, like with a girl and you're like, oh, all women are like this. So those are common ways the brain works. Aren't they? Yeah. And you <laughs> have to mitigate that through practice. And we'll bring awareness to it. Right, right, right. So you can pump the brakes on it if right. you want to. Right. So one NLP technique by the person who invented it um, from the book, The Science of Magic, Richard Bandler, that's his name. Love that title. Yeah. Have you heard of uh, Bandler at all? Hmm. He's the founder of uh, NLP. There's another guy with him. They did it together and then they kind of branched off in their own ways. But um, nominalizations are basically abstractions. And the way he says you can know if something's a nominalization is if you can physically hold it in your hand. So what you do is if you hear someone with a problem that's speaking in nominalizations, like justice is an example I always go to, justice isn't something you can hold in your hand. Yeah, it's so obscure. And when someone else talks about justice, we all have our own interpretation that comes with pictures and experiences, mm -hmm. you know. Um, respect is a good example, and it's something that causes a lot of conflict in relationships. It's like, let's say you see... Again, super subjective. Yeah, yeah, Well, it's like, so let's say you and your girlfriend have an issue of like she is wearing a dress and she asks you uh what do you think yeah for you respect might be telling the truth and being honest you know oh you respect me enough to be honest and for her having respect might be being nice so you might tell her the truth and be like ah, i don't really like it she can think that's disrespectful because you aren't being nice. And I think it's respect. Right, so what you should do is figure out what people's nominalizations mean through questioning. So can you define nominalization? Right, that's... And clear... It's I basically mean, an abstraction. Can, can you put it in something we can hold? <laughs> yeah, it's an, it's, it's an abstract concept, something you can't hold in your hands. So like justice or ah, respect. Okay. So you, you can't know. hold it. Right, hands. so... It's just it's just the NLP term for like an abstraction. Okay. Right. So where to go with that in NLP is through questioning, you can help somebody with a problem by just asking them questions and getting them to understand these wild concepts in a way that they can hold in their hand and fix it. So when we see a nominalization in somebody else, like now that we have awareness of it, how do we handle it? Do we uh, bring awareness to it, make it tangible for them? That's the way that they give in the book. It's actually a book for therapists. So if somebody comes to you with a problem, you obviously don't want to help somebody if they don't ask for it, but you don't just tell them what they should do because it's not going to touch the right brain. You bring them to their own conclusion and you can do that through metaphor and NLP uses language in the five senses based on how people learn to bring that awareness from the right brain to the left brain so that they can have the proper concept of it in their conscious mind. Reminds me a lot of sales because in sales, you're trying to get people to give you little micro commitments along the way. Yes, I'm interested. Yes, I can afford it. Yes, I like you. Yes, I like the company. And then by the end, you've you've shown them so many stories and you've gotten their intentional buy-in from their right brain. Mm -hmm. Because you appealed to their emotions, you appealed to them through metaphor and story. 
or you know other concepts and by the end they're sold exactly that's nlp and sales go hand in hand um i know that that's kind of how i found nlp was through sales and marketing and that's i think you'll you can find a lot of um, literature for sales using nlp so are these new concepts or is this the same quote unquote witchcraft that people were doing in the 1600s and 1700s, 1800s? The Signs of Magic 1 and 2 was the first of this. Richard Bandler and I forget the other guy's name um, were the founders in the 70s. Bandler was a, he was like a computer science guy and, and a linguist, I think. And he put the two together to create this method Um, and it basically looks at how people actually learn everyone learns differently even though most people don't realize it we just recently found out that some people don't have an internal dialogue at all um, which is crazy but yeah i've heard the same people and i've met people like that yeah yeah um people think either in visuals um feelings it's all the five senses, basically. Um, but the way you take in the external world from the outside and the way that you process it inside, they can be different. So myself, I'm visual kinesthetic. I see something, I take it in, and then I feel it, and then I decide what to do with it from there. So NLP uses language to speak to you based on, if I listen to you, your language, if you say something like, oh, I can, I can hear that, or I can see that, or I feel like you can gauge how their internal processes work wow. in a subconscious way that they don't even realize. So if you learn to start paying attention to that, you speak to them in that same way, and using that for sales, you are connecting with them and building a rapport, which goes deeper into NLP and hypnosis. And they don't even realize it. Exactly. Because you've tapped into somebody, like I hear... Yeah, I can see that in sales calls all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, so what, they're thinking logically, right? So what you would do if they say, "I can see that," you speak to them on a visual level. You paint a picture of what they're going to get by using your product. If you if you hear a feeling like, "I don't know how I feel about that," you paint a picture using feeling words like. Uh, getting grounded, treading water, like come out of the water and get on solid ground. Those, you use that kind of language and subconsciously- You said that was for feeling? Yeah, yeah. Subconsciously, when you use the correct nominalizations for the way they think, you are connecting with them and their mind is going to work to finish processes. And Yeah, and when they build those bridges themselves, they become more sold on it. Exactly. And then to get really good at NLP, you actually start with the one that they think in and you use all of them. So you would use like feeling, seeing, hearing, you would use all their senses and create a full internal world of what it would be like to use your product or or service and you can get them sold. But that's, that's a practice. That's where you would want to get as a, you know, practice NLP master. Yeah, so I think about, so my sales process goes call one, which is like an intro acquaintance call. Really, it's me probing them and seeing if they're qualified to work with us. Step two is me doing deep probing and analysis and a lot of conversational exploration. That's where I'm agitating their pain point most aggressively. And then 
Step three is the proposal. When I present the proposal, this is um, painting a picture for them. Mm-hmm. Now, my sales process isn't perfect, but it, it works well for the intents of this conversation. But when I show them the data dashboard and I show them other live campaigns that are performing well, that's telling a story of how they, you know, where their life could go. Um, I show them creative graphics and illustrations and videos so they can get an idea of, you know, what this future state will look like, a visual, right, as well as a feeling that they get from the from the creative that we do. And then I show them, like, uh, the step-by-step process, the Trello boards, essentially. And by, by doing that, I've painted a very C picture for them. And when they see the numbers, they get, you know, 100 grand a month. I, I, I could be doing that, like... Mm-hmm. What what would my life be like if I got there? I think I could probably touch better on the feeling component of it, though, by asking them more about their dreams and their aspirations and where they're going, where they want to personally go mm-hmm. and let them paint a better picture. I think that's an area I could improve upon. Mm-hmm. But my sales coach, my first sales coach taught me, uh, gave me a script that asked them to paint a picture of, okay, once you're making a hundred grand a month, then what are you going to do? Why do you want to get there? Mm-hmm. Oh, because, you know, me and my wife can take this vacation or I'll take a salary of 20 grand a month and, you know, I'll take my, I'll pay for my kid's college or whatever. And and you say, oh, could you expand on that more? Could you tell me more about that? And you get them to just open up their heart and, and then build this like huge sense of feeling around, okay, this is the logistical steps I need to take to get to that feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds exactly like what I've heard too. Um, it's really making sure that you're not saying what you can give them, it's what they can get from you. And then, you know, I think NLP can really solidify that by really through your line of questioning, you can figure out how they think, what they want, and, you know, how they think they're going to get there. And then painting a story in their mind, which goes back to how humans think in narratives yeah. of, how they're gonna get there in the way that they think and making sure that you're not doing it in the way that you think, you know, because you just, it's all about them obviously grasping that other people's minds don't work the way yours does, you know? Yeah, I I think it's very easy when you get good at pitching and sales to tell your narrative Mm -hmm. and them to try to kind of emulate it. But Mm -hmm. at least speaking for myself, I think it's an area I could improve is to to put it back in their hands more, put it back in their mind more. Right, right, right. Present some stimulating ideas and let them process it mm-hmm. and interpret it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something kind of off topic. Um, have you ever read the book, Never Split the Difference? Yeah, um, love that book. To make sure that someone is on the same page, you want to get the that's right and not the reluctant yes if people don't know you know love that's right you don't Feels you don't so good to hear that yeah you you don't want to get a yes because people can say yes just to get you out of their hair you know like mm-hmm. especially if you're a good salesman you can overlook that idea because you most people have been trained in sales just to get the yes you know and they think oh i'm in but you know, all of a sudden that person doesn't execute or they drop off and you're left wondering why, you want to get their objections. And the objections aren't a no, it's finding to get to the that that's right. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that's a tip for what you're saying, like to make sure that once you've gone through your whole sales process, you keep asking questions to figure out 
how you can lock in the close, you know? Yeah, that's the best way to get past the objections just to say, can you expand on that? Or mm-hmm. can you provide a little bit more detail? Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes they'll reveal what the real objection is. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a money thing or if it's a timing thing or they don't feel ready themselves, you can usually get at that. And oftentimes they'll like, they'll walk through their own objections or just present some really small issue that you can just overcome and say, mm-hmm. yeah, well, we have a guarantee. And like, if you're not, if you're not happy, you can just quit. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, too, from that book is uh, asking no questions first, because letting someone say no makes them feel like they're in power. In no, control, is, yeah. no is a control word. So instead of asking a question to say yes, you would ask, uh, you know, is, is there anything in this that that you don't like or uh, is is now a bad time? And once you get them to say no, they feel relaxed wow. and in control. So... Asking the no questions is a way to not get stuck in that reluctant, all right, get away from me, you creepy salesman. Like, that yes. lukewarm, like, yeah. just quelling you mm-hmm. by telling mm-hmm. you yes or placating you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's so cool to talk about this because these are concepts I, I hugely believe in, but I need to be reminded of them, which is part of why I listen to podcasts because I always get these reminders of like, oh yeah, I should be doing that. Right. I should be getting the no first. So, so you described what it's like uh, on the right side of the brain, which is speaking in narratives and uh, metaphors and story. Now, what, where does the, the left brain come into this and how do we appeal to that or you know, persuade it? Right. So the left brain thinks it's in control because it's the one that talks and makes up a story. The left brain, right brain split people. You put something in their left hand from the right side, or in their right hand from the left side, because your right, your left brain works your right hand. And then you say, "How did that get there?" If it didn't see it, it'll make up the reason why, like, "Oh, I picked it up." When really, like, the scientist gave it to them. So yeah, and just for the listeners, this is from the study. After they cut the connective tissue between the two sides of the brain, they don't communicate with each other anymore. And so the left brain has a logical answer to everything that it's asked. Even if the answer is not true, it can rationalize it. Right, right, right. So I think in Western society, we have gone too deep into the intellectual, rational mind, which is the left brain. And we've discounted the right brain Mm -hmm. because it sounds woo-woo. But um, through what I've been learning, um, I think that it is important to connect them in relationship. Carl Jung gave the alchemical steps to like the path of the soul, which is going through four stages. Um, Basically, people have probably heard of the concept of the shadow. Um, It's everything about yourself that you don't like and you suppress, you know, like negative aspects like jealousy and envy and things like that. you kind of normally would like to pretend that that's not there, but that starts to become a problem. And especially as a a manager or a supervisor, someone in charge of things, you want to make sure that you are like a fully, you know, matured human being. Um, And there's a process how you can kind of gauge where you're at. So that's the first one, meeting the shadow. And then there is, the albedo, the whitening, that's 
once you've learned what your shadow is. This is all the components of the left brain? This is this is the uh, the path of the soul into a complete soul. So this is oh, so this is connecting your left and right brain in oh. harmony. Um, so the second one is the awakening where you're conscious of the fact that you have these problems and that there's a path forward. Then there's the third one, the yellowing, which is the education where that's your relationship to others. Um, and that's learning what you're projecting on other people. And I think that is probably one of the most important things for people is to actually learn to hear what someone else is saying rather than what you put on top of what they're saying, um, your filter. And so that you can have a real relationship with someone rather than just like your, you know, assumptions. Um, but I think for sales and things like that, it's going to help to get out of your own way and for managing other people, you know. And the final phase is individuation, which is just becoming your true self, getting your story on its right path, your hero's journey, and, you know, not having any of these uh, complexes is what they would be called in Jungian yeah. science. Yeah, so that is basically, you have to go on this journey internally so that you can stop manifesting all these unconscious things externally. Like if you want to stop smoking, but you can't, you know, if you want to stop dating the wrong person, but you can't, um, if you have a problem with your parents or whatever, any kind of story, um, you kind of have to go on this journey of going deep into yourself and in that right brain world and pulling it out to the left brain so that you can have a healthy ego and a healthy relationship to the people around you. Okay, and look, obviously I have my shadows and that's sparked some questions about how do I deal with challenges and, and areas that I try to cover up and hide. How do we go about that? Do you just journal for hours and just unpack that one concept? Or is this working with a facilitator or a therapist or a hypnotherapist? All of it. There's no one right way. And if you learn about archetypes and symbolism and the way the right brain works, um, we're given our set of symbols in our early years and those stick. So let's say that like for me personally, I grew up in Christianity and um, a lot of people, you know, millennials and people growing up in this age go against Christianity um, because, you know, there's a lot of issues with today's Christianity, especially in the United States. You might want to fight against it. Um, you might have had a bad experience. Um, but those symbols are ingrained into your mind forever if you if you got them as kids so it could be hinduism buddhism whatever a healthy thing to do is to go back and learn to use those symbols in a way that's healthy for you because your your right brain is going to understand them more than somewhere else you know so it's just about what clicks for you whether it's art is a huge thing um you know journaling r creative writing um exercise yoga therapy, whatever. Um, yeah, but what if we want to get at like very specific constructs or uh, complexes as you call them? 
Right. So you would have to go through the that path of talking to that brain. Dream journaling is one, but you probably have to learn what any of that means. Um, the first book I recommend is Carl Jung's last book. It's a uh, man in his symbol. He wrote it with his predecessors. Um, that was him basically breaking down his whole entire life's work in a way that people can understand. Um, and it's what will give you the basis for these concepts. And then just going through your journey personally, once you learn the foundations, you can kind of guide yourself, but you'll know which phase you're in based on um, what you're going through in your life. Um, the shadow, you know, if you're mm -hmm. having your conflict in that area where you're working on that, you can go into a deep depression and you question everything. You wonder why and if anything's real, if anyone was your friend, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you, you go into the darkness, but you have to face that darkness and not stay there. And then you go into the next phase, the awakening, where you realize why and what. And then, you know, you go through and you start to figure out your relationships with other people and why you have those. And then you become an individual. So you can see this in many different philosophies and religions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Nietzsche had the spokes Zarathustra, where he had it in the story of becoming different animals. Christianity, Buddhism, they they all have it. It's just whatever one clicks with you is what you go with. And, you know, you go on your journey at your own pace. Yeah, I've heard abstractions of the same concept of, you know, going through the tunnel or on the prince's journey, I think it's called, or the, the knight's journey. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it makes a lot of sense. And eventually the outcome is a full and complete person where the left and right brains are essentially working like yin and yang, mm -hmm. right? Like oil and water, but yep, yep, yep. together and, and I guess empowering each other and working cohesively, right? Yeah. And complementary. Mm -hmm. One, this is like awesome and completely mind blowing. But I guess two is like, how are you applying this in your own life and how can other people like what what are the practices you're doing to find your shadows, I mm -hmm. guess is the question. For for me it's like the only way I can think of doing this is just by like journaling for hours on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. Just like t taking like some fixation that I have and just like unpacking it. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I've tried it all. And um, what I've kind of gotten to in my practice right now is um, mind body stuff. So I'll do deep breathing. I do Wim Hof method. I don't know if you've heard of him. Did it this morning. Yeah, yeah. I use this app, the Wim Hof Method app. It's free for most of it. And he's actually, because of COVID, giving a free um, trial of bubble breathing. There's a visual bubble and you just breathe with it. 30 breaths at the end, you hold for as long as you can on the out breath. And then you take a deep in for 15 seconds. And you just go it's through it best. and go through it. This, um, the science is all there. It's doing that um, something with the vagus nerve, that is like another thing in itself. Um, Which connects the brain to the gut, right? Right, right, it's the longest nerve in our body and new science is showing that, you know, people with trauma and stuff have that not responding in the correct ways and how you can turn it on through cold showers, laughing, singing, deep breathing, 
and wow. meditation just so it's not just the conscious activity of like unpacking these engrams or these i guess complexes mm-hmm. it's not all conscious work to unpack this right, it might right. be being in a downward dog and feeling a shift happen in your gut Mm-hmm. which happens to be connected to your brain, which happens to have 30% as many nerve endings as your brain, aka the 30% of the processing power and the thinking power lives in your gut. So it's like just, you know, I've, I've felt some shifts happen. And it's a little hard to describe. It's a feeling. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess I was trying to materialize it and say, like, how can I literally bring this into the light, this, these shadows? But in truth, it's it's not just knowing, like, Okay, I, as a kid, uh, you know, liked playing with toys that I chewed on, and that's why I have an oral fixation now, mm-hmm. you know, become a smoker become, because of it. It's not just that, but it's also just being so in touch with your body that these idiosyncrasies uh, can be, like, released and, and, uh, and aligned. And I want to really uh, dive deep on breath work if you're down because at least the type of breath work that I'm doing is, like, uh, I think it's 100 breaths with mm-hmm. music meditation music it's like some youtube video um which sucks don't do that because there's a every time there's a commercial at five minutes and it really interrupts the meditative process but anyway because the volume's loud Mm -hmm. on commercials obviously Mm -hmm. in holotropic breath work which is basically the kind that makes you in a psychedelic state hyperventilating basically yeah yeah yeah. uh it is the effect is that for me uh, and it's very similar to a lot of other meditative or psychedelic experiences, which is it brings up random weird memories mm-hmm. or maybe things that you're sitting on or just random shit comes up, random unresolved stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like for me recently, one of my friends who I had like a, like a three month quiet period with, who was the best friend of mine, I just, we just stopped talking. Uh, and there was obviously a divide happening. He came up, nothing positive, nothing negative. He just came up during one of my breathwork sessions and it like brought to light like, oh, there's some awkwardness there. Mm-hmm. Um, but all kinds of weird stuff has come up during breathwork. Right. Like uh, traumas from childhood to people who are pissing you off or things you're really excited about. But it's in like a different, it's not the same type of thinking. It's not like your normal brain thinking. It's right. like it's almost more like a feeling. Yeah, it's the right. It's right brain. So it's your right brain. It's almost like um, you can look at it as things bubbling up to the surface, like like a fish or a creature coming up to the surface for a brief moment. And exactly. You get moments to be able to it. catch it, or it goes back down below. Um, and in meditation and things like that, that's how it works. You quiet the left brain so the left brain is always talking it's always you know running some kind of a you know dialogue or a monologue in your head and or dialogue yeah yeah. meditation and breathing and stuff shuts that off so that you can get the deep answers and the deep you know repressed things that you don't know are there they're in the back and dreams and all that too that's the thing. It's like, I didn't know these thoughts were there. Mm-hmm. They yeah. just, they, they come up and like, when you're doing holotropic breath work, you're kind of in like a, a different state of mind. It's not your normal state of consciousness. It's almost like you're 
uh, out of body or you're not in control. Mm -hmm. And these things just come up, but it's not the same as memories. It's not the same as feelings. Mm -hmm. It's just this like uh, new abstract concept. I don't know how to describe yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So that's your left brain letting go of control and letting your right brain have its moment to give you what is what they call unconscious because it makes sense. You're not conscious of it. So mm -hmm. like those moments. So those are living your subconscious until you bubble them to the top. Right, right. The and out. there's all these different ways to do that, you know, whether it's a Western way of like journaling or, you know, writing down your dreams and any of the union or other concepts or, you know, Eastern philosophies, you know, you can do any of these mind-body connection things, breathing and yoga and things like that. Um, but really anyone that wants to be in control of themselves, um, wants to have some kind of a practice where you are in tune with that part of your brain, have, that you have a relationship with your psyche, your inner world, and not try and repress it, which is really what all of it's about. It's about having a relationship, not having an attachment to your ego story and not repressing, just letting things be and not judging them as good or bad. Taking away judgment and just seeing them as something that happened. And, and noting them is pretty important too. Exactly. Like if you're having a dream about a wolf chasing you and you wake up in the morning and you write on the wall wolf with your finger, mm -hmm. you'll remember that dream for the whole day. But if you don't, you forget it. Yeah. It's just yeah. weird like dream theory stuff. But the same thing happens whether, you know, I'm doing a psychedelic inward journey or I'm doing breath work, you know, th those thoughts will come up and they'll, they'll disappear just as quick. Mm -hmm. um, so I mm -hmm. think it's important to go back and think about them and, and acknowledge them. I don't, I don't even know 100% how to deal with them because, again, it's not even like really thoughts. Like when you're in a, when I'm in a deep meditative state during a psychedelic experience, things will come up that aren't thoughts. It's almost like, it's almost like this combination of what you can see the, the dream state and the third eye, the theater of the mind, and mm -hmm. then what you can feel, and they build a complete picture. But yeah. whereas our left brain is like building a, a concrete concept out of mm -hmm. a thought. So it's this, it's probably right brain mm -hmm. building this kind of like complete picture from all these different senses, mm -hmm. sight, sound, yeah. et cetera. Um, but it's not always going to come as clear as your left brain would like it to. Right, right, so, right. I guess that, that explains why you have these like random flurry of thoughts when you're in this hyperventilated state mm -hmm. and you're hyper oxygenated and things like that. Mm -hmm. Or just having something click, like you work and work and work to try and change something and then all of a sudden one thing happens and boom, like you got it, you know, like you, wow. you can let go of something or you can do something that you've been trying to do, like getting yourself to exercise or something like that, you know, like, and it doesn't even have to be conscious. You might be in a meditation and then when you're done, decide from now on, I'm working out every morning. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it's just like this feeling like I'm doing it. There's, yeah. It's not a question. There's no more hurdle for me to come over. It has to be put into that right brain and, you know, uh, made as a core belief or a core value. I do this. I am this, which is like the ego. The ego is the eye, it's how we relate to the world. And something profound that I realized, a good example to figure out the true self versus the ego is, the ego is 
any object that you can see in your mind of who you or someone else is, it's the object. But what we really are, the true self, is the space in which those objects inhabit. And that's to realize that we are the space and not the things is to not need the things because, you know, attachment is suffering. If you look at Buddhism, Mm -hmm. as soon as you attach to one of the things that inhabits that space, you need to control what that thing does in your mind to be at peace, you know? that makes sense yeah so it's like i am a successful businessman father you know um whatever or like i am you know i have a great physique that i work hard at it's like as soon as you lose one of those things you have let's say you get in an accident and you can't use your legs anymore and in your head you see being a man as being strong and you know have a great physique and stuff you can't use your limbs i am no longer a man you know and that will that will bring you down but when you know that whatever's in the space isn't who you are then you can kind of have a healthy sense of self yeah i mean a lot of people i think would be concerned that they would just be uh complacent disinterested non-excited right non-excitable but the truth is, is it's actually like, it reminds me of Fight Club. It's like, one, it's only once you've lost everything, you can do anything. Exactly. And it's actually an ultra empowering state of being mm-hmm. once you've removed yourself from all that. Mm-hmm. Because like, think about it in uh, terms of investments. So somebody says, look, you invest 10 grand, I'm going to give you 100 grand back, but there's a 50% chance you lose your money. You know, if you are so confident in yourself and so detached from your money that you can take a risk like that if you think it's the right time and you feel it's the right time, you can you know, get 10X return because you're not attached to your money. And you know that life is never gonna get so bad that you're gonna become homeless with your kind of work ethic. You can make that investment and you might make 10, 10X on your money where somebody else who is feeling grabby with their money and scared, they won't make the investment because of ego. I don't wanna be seen as poor in front of my friends if this goes bad. Mm-hmm. So, with that basic financial example, it shows you how somebody who is non-attached can be in a much stronger state of success or, you know, life fulfillment, whatever. Because even if they do lose the money, they're still the same great guy who's, you know, happy all the time and does, never cared about the money in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even the apartment or whatever. Mm-hmm. And one key point is that you can't get rid of the ego and trying to get rid of it is not healthy either. Trying to always be the observer is not attainable, but just to constantly, you know, through meditation or whatever, remembering that you are not your ego and having just a good relationship with it is Mm -hmm. what's healthy. Something that a lot of men, especially in the US, have a problem with is they are their job you know their job is tied to their ego so or their business so let's say you lose your job or your business fails or something you can go into a depression because that is tied to who you are and you no longer know who you are anymore because that's gone so you know if someone asks you like what do you do and you say i am an entrepreneur you can kind of hear it that they believe that that's what they are they're their ego is tied to that. So 
make sure that you recognize that if something bad happens, that's not who you are. That is something that happened to you and readjust the story and make sure that failures are not an end point. They're just a part of the journey and keep your hero's journey. There's no hero's journey that, you know, ends in, in a failure, you know, but they all have, they all have the struggles. Wow. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, another client that I'm talking to who lived in China and was a monk for like two months, three months, and he's Canadian, uh, so he's like a normal guy like us. He's actually a music producer, pretty successful uh, guy in the music industry. And um, he is doing, he's been researching how humans were to communicate without language. And so tying this to what you were saying, which is basically removing the left brain from the equation. Mm -hmm. So how would two people, all, all other mammals and species communicate without language? Mm -hmm. They like bark or they grunt, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. How would two humans greet each other if, if you erased completely their, I guess, memory bank of language? Mm -hmm. So would they go, mm -hmm, or grunt, like what, what would it sound like? And so they're, they're doing this study where they do it with deaf people because deaf people have never heard articulate language. Mm -hmm. And so do these two people who have no language whatsoever, what is their instinctual way to communicate? Mm -hmm. And it's weird because we are born with programming. Like right. we, we will know how to greet somebody else even if we don't speak a language to them. Mm -hmm. Like what, what do we do? Do we smile do we nod like what's natural and instinctive but it probably comes from the same instinctual foundation that you were talking about right at the mm -hmm. beginning of the show yeah so like you've probably heard that like oh 90 or whatever communication is nonverbal. yeah i mean if you really look at it tone of voice um eye contact facial there's micro expressions you can go deep into that um, body language, you can go deep into that. Those are Which all- Which could be instinctual. That might not even be- Exactly. And they are, and you can study it. There's a lot of good literature on all that. Um, little tips are like, if somebody's feet are pointed towards an exit while they're talking to you, they want to leave. You know, micro expressions, like um, if you greet somebody when you see them, if you check their eyebrows, if their eyebrows go down rather than up for a split second, they don't like you. Do People, you ever catch that stuff yourself? So, when I start to think about it, um, but you can practice it and it just becomes instinctual. I do tend to look at people's feet. Um, if whoever their feet are pointed at, if there's a group of people talking, are the people that they um, interested in. are interested in. Exactly. So isn't necessarily that they don't like you. It might be that they don't know you or whatever. Um, but just little things like that. Okay, so again, that sounds like a subconscious move. Mm -hmm. It is. Right, which means, I mean, it could be learned from years and years of nurturing nature, mm -hmm. but there's also just an instinctual component to it. Mm -hmm. You turn away from somebody you don't like, right? Like right. you've probably heard the term blading, which is where you put one shoulder in and you cut off your energetic openness to that person, and then they get the hint and they walk away. Yeah. So you're at a party, you're approaching a girl, she turns her shoulder in, and 
you know, you're exactly. basically deflated at yeah. that point. Some of it's cultural and some of it's biological. Um, chimps even like inhibit some of this stuff. So yeah, that's an interesting topic. I can, I've learned a lot about it. It's really interesting. You can tell people are lying. They'll physically put a barrier in front of themselves to hide, which means they're hiding something, little things like that. Um, there's some good books by FBI agents and stuff. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but um, you could probably type in FBI agent body language, how to detect lies and things like that. Um, but it's along the lines of evolutionary biology, um, if, if you're interested. But this stuff is all stuff that I've learned because of business, you know, to know, to gauge what the other person is thinking and how to obviously persuade them or not sabotage yourself through bad body language. Um, even just good mm -hmm. posture and being a leader, those things go hand in hand. And then the mind-body connection, you can actually change your psychology by changing your physiology and vice versa. So if you can practice, put yourself in a like positive posture, you know, arms out on your side, standing in a good posture and think about something that you've had as a success and then try to think about something negative and change your feeling and it won't do it. But if you do it the opposite way and you hunch your shoulders, look down at the ground, think about something negative and try to go positive, the same thing works. So you can literally subconsciously change your internal feeling by changing your external. Damn, this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble even taking mental notes on all this because it's so, I mean, it's it's a very complete picture you're painting, but it's deep. Mm -hmm. And it's even somebody like me who loves and leans into this stuff, it's, it's complex. So, you know, I think that's one of the biggest issues why people don't lean in is because stuff feels daunting or scary. I want to remark on it, but also ask you a question, which is, you know, one, it's, it all starts with bringing awareness, right? Just listening to podcasts and learning these type of things, your subconscious behaviors and, and your subconscious programming will begin to change as you listen. It'll right. change your narratives. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't have to worry that you're not doing anything unless you're literally not doing anything. You're not seeing any progress in your life. But just by listening, you're bringing awareness, changing thought patterns, and eventually changing actions through that. Um, even if it's a long tail, you know, it takes a while to get done. Um, but like, I, I try, you know, for a long time I coached people, and I I try to never recommend that they do it all at once. No know? way. Like my my coach gave me something to do for a week, so I'm going to work on it for a week which I was really grateful for because I was like, oh, I'm never gonna be able to do that shit. But then when you put it down to just a week, it was very palatable and the next day, the change is implemented. Yeah. This happened yesterday, today I, I made that change. So I think it's a lot easier than people think if uh, they're willing to be patient with themselves and do it at a, at a steady pace. Um, but like, how would you recommend people get started on understanding these psychological triggers like, is there any specific starting points or practices you would recommend? Right, so just a disclaimer, I have ADHD and I obsess over all kinds of different subjects. Um, I would say in me teaching all of this, 
this is just bringing awareness. And if you find something fascinating and you want to learn more, dig deeper into that subject. Um, but don't do the ADHD thing and pick something up for like, you know, a couple days and then jump to the next because that one's exciting and then jump to the next. It's find which one kind of clicks with you, go down that path and kind of, um, you know, find a pra- way to put it into practice and not just learn. Don't keep it in that left brain, keep it in the right brain of action. Yeah, I think there's another component that I've observed in myself, which is I'm kind of a thrill seeker. Mm-hmm. I like stuff that stimulates me and it's like action-packed and exciting. Right. Even challenge and, and failure are exciting to me because it's like I get something to tackle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I've learned to remove myself from the desire for stimulation mm-hmm. and just do stuff because I'm genuinely interested in it. So whether it's reading or listening to a podcast or watching a, a YouTube video, it's more about um, how am I interested in this topic rather than how can this challenge and stimulate me? Now, of course, there's a balance there, but I think we have a tendency to go for instant gratification. Like I want one hard hitting point to take home from this, mm-hmm. um, but to be patient with ourselves and say, look, I'm just going to let a two hour podcast run and I'm going to just listen and, and be present with it, have enough attention to stay with it through the show. Exactly. Yeah. This stuff's all about um, helping with, what society has made us instant gratification bots, you know, with our phones and everything. Having a practice meditation or whatever, it's gonna help you cope with, you know, feelings of anxiety or help you build your focus through, you know, quieting the mind and getting into a state where you can pay attention to, you know, your craft or whatever you're trying to work on. Just picking up one of these practices is gonna take away what society's kind of built onto us to make us just like you know instant gratification seeking animals yeah it reinforces it so much because i mean look i'm not trying to brag or anything but i have a lot of mindfulness practices and i'm still very i fall victim to the notifications Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. whether it's slack or email or iMessage or an incoming FaceTime call, I feel obliged to answer because it's just this constant reinforcement of something that's actually counterproductive for me. Mm-hmm. It's productive in the short term because I respond to people, get them the answer they want, and I make money off of solving problems for people. In the human side of things, it's, it's exactly against what my practices are, which are to not be excitable, to, to be patient and to have deep focus while I work and actually get substantial work done, not just be like replying to people all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's what is important too, is what you said was a practice. So having a practice is going to, you know, humans need ritual and implementing one at least, like, you know, every morning I make breakfast and journal or something or meditate for 15 minutes or, you know, write or exercise, whatever it may be, having that ritual is going to give your mind the ability, especially doing something in the morning, to then feel like it has something it's attaining to which gives your uh, mirror neurons the idea that, hey, I can stick with this, and then you can then keep Mm -hmm. going onto new positive habits and just keep implementing them one by one. But there's all these different tricks where you, you know, if the mind wants to do everything at once, it wants instant gratification. Yeah. 
if it tries to do everything, it's going to do nothing, you know? So I think that's something that's important was what you said is having just at least maybe one practice, 15 minutes in the morning, picking something, journaling, exercising, meditation, whatever, whatever clicks with you is something that will work. Yeah. I love that. I love the one at a time approach. Mm-hmm. I, I was actually recording a podcast yesterday. I've been doing like a few, a few per week now and I'm really getting the rhythm, getting a lot of confidence around it. Uh, but the, the habit is forming, I can feel it. But the guy I was on with yesterday brought up that he actually learned from one of my recommendations to start meditating, but he couldn't bring himself to sit down for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Lives in New York City, like obviously a lot of stimulation there, a lot of fucking marketers there, <laughs> a lot of advertising, but anyway. He did one, one minute of meditation a day. He started with one minute, did that for a week. One minute, 60 mm-hmm. seconds of meditation, that's all he could muscle. And then two two minutes and then three minutes, week by week went up by one minute at a time and eventually got to, I think like 15 minutes, 20 minutes in the morning and mm-hmm. 20 minutes in the evening. Mm-hmm. He was using this in the context of becoming 1% better each day. But yeah. you know, even if it's not a actual 1%, it's, it's just you know doing a slight improvement and starting with a very small ramp at the beginning mm-hmm. is important. And the end product, like, I think about fitness, like somebody who's in great shape, like me and you know, you know, some bodybuilders and stuff like that. And to the onlooker, all they see is the tip of the iceberg. This guy's in crazy good shape. He does cardio, he eats clean, all this stuff. But each of those are little habits that he built over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, one day he learned to meditate and started doing that. One day he maybe went vegan or, you know, went slow carb and practiced that. And when you look at the culmination of all that 10 years later, you know, each year he might've built one habit, but on the surface, it looks like he's got 10 crazy good habits. Gym every morning, run every afternoon, mm-hmm. meditate every night, eat healthy, yeah. eat fruit. Those are all things that he built up one at a time. Mm-hmm. And those are part of the concept, which Einstein says is greater than uh, E equals MC squared is compounding interest. If you think about it, that 1% is compounding and then turning it into 2%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, slowly building up something. You know, I start working out one day, 10 years later, I've been working out for 10 years, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. that's all, everything is compounding in that way. And I see it as a snowball effect in a positive or negative. You can compound negative things. Getting into a depression, it, that spirals, you know? Just watch what you're... Uh, building on watch what you're practicing everything is a practice those practices will build compound negative or compound positive interest and the thing i brought up with him yesterday which i'm curious to run by you which is not quantified self but compounded self Mm -hmm. right like how we as humans improve in compound ways but it's harder to measure because there's not like a financial metric to go with it Mm -hmm. how do you look at that like how, how do you materialize your own compound growth I would say exactly what you're saying, just sticking with practice and habits. And then also at the same time, watching that ego and not getting into an all or nothing thinking, you know, CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy helps mitigate what a lot of, you know, professional people have, which give you anxiety is the all or nothing, black and white. Like if you have a bad day where, you know, you drank too much or you 
ate some bad food, even though you've been, you know, you just started working out consistently, or you skip a workout, not beating yourself up and not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying like, well, I screwed up. I, I, you know, I drank and ate bad. There goes my routine that I promised myself I would do. It's just about allowing yourself to slip up, not telling yourself that everything's ruined and just keep going. And pretty soon you become like, there's all, there's that click. They say it's like what, 21 days when something becomes a habit, just going through the process, allowing yourself to slip up and not be hard on yourself and keep going. I think the compounding of the going forward in that direction versus the slip ups is going to make up for everything, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you think about a financial chart like the Dow, it's going to have, you know, may have flash crashes and drops, but mm-hmm. in general, they say, finance guys, they say, in general, markets are bull. Yeah. They're growing generally. Mm-hmm. And they compound, of course, because uh, there's the financial metric there. But that, I think that's, that's important for us, you know, I hate to make everything business context, but like if you look at a, you know, the Dow Jones over, you know, the last 10 years in general, it goes up and to the right. Mm-hmm. And in general, there's, you know, spikes downward. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like in our life, like we have points where we, where shit falls apart. Yeah. And I think COVID has just kind of sped up processes that economists have seen coming and, you know, adapting. And for me, I apply the lens of psychology, depth psychology to what's going on in the world right now. And it, and it kind of makes sense where we're at. We're kind of in that shadow state where things are coming to light that we've been hiding. You know, economic disasters have, have shown that, you know, companies were hanging on by a thread or certain regulations or unregulated things were out of control and they were being held on by a string, you know, like we are in that shadow place where we're like these things are coming out and they're hitting us and we don't want them to hit us, you know? And I think, you know, if you look at society, it kind of gives you hope to see that we can come out of this in a positive way because there are people that are actively working on the positive concepts on a business level, on an economic level and as a society level. Yeah, I think you'd be really interested in this book. I might have brought it up on other podcast episodes, actually probably with Jordan, but it's called The Fourth Turning. Mm-hmm. And there is seasons of society. Have you heard of the book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So basically where it goes, I believe it goes the high, which is the baby boomer era. Mm-hmm. And then it goes like the creative expression one. I forget what it's called. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't remember the details. I, I know what you're talking about, but, but it goes elaborate. to an awakening where people focus on creativity and expression, which is, you know, the Woodstock era. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, millennial era, which they're each about 20, 25 years long, and moves in like a 90 year cycle. Mm-hmm. The millennial era was the crisis. That's when we start questioning institutions mm-hmm. and old systems. You know, the fact that our senators are in their 80s, like they're making yeah. the rules for us. We start questioning that stuff. And then the stage that we're in now, which mm-hmm. was, uh, I think it was predicted for like 2025, mm-hmm. is the unraveling. Mm. So all of the systems that we've been questioning, now we're breaking them down and deconstructing them. And, you know, like a phoenix, we're spawning anew. Yeah. Um, but that, that can't be an easy and feel-good process. That's no. 
breaking everybody down to their breaking point mm -hmm. and, and melting down everything that we've believed for so many years, um, but we're gonna build it fresh. And so there is actually hope on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. We're just living in a time when it's the most shit. <laughs> yeah, capitalism without sustainability inevitably has brought us here, you know, with global warming, with quantitative easing, kind of propping Jeez, up our currencies yeah. and all kinds of, you know, things that people have sat back and profited on, obviously with the crash. Um, a whistleblower just came out about a new crash. They did the exact same tranches, the credit default swaps on commercial, and that's about to hit us at the same time as all this other stuff right now. So all the office buildings are gonna basically default? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their loans? It's gonna hit hard. Um, wow, I haven't even heard about July this. was when balloon payments came due for commercial real estate on top of, you know, the death of retail, brick and mortar retail. Oh and my God. All these other things. It's gonna be scary, but at the same time, just knowing that and COVID. we have a chance to pivot. All this B&M mm -hmm. just shut down. It wasn't just the digital era, but like COVID just shut everything up yeah. the brick and mortar. Yeah, down. and I think for ourselves, we need to look at how to pivot and how to you know work with what we have. And at the same time, I think the country needs to break up these monopolies and stop allowing mergers that keep happening in you know telecom, Amazon obviously eating everything up, like Disney, Facebook. They're they're insane. And then basically, I went to school for finance, and every single class, no matter what it was on, we had to have a chapter on the crash and different regulations that we need to enforce that Trump has just rolled back. What's the one? Not Glass-Steagall, but um, he, he rolled back a pretty big thing that kind of is letting banks and Wall Street do what they were doing to cause the 2008 crash again, yeah, too. 2008. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so. Yeah, my, my longtime friend Felix uh, has studied the fall of Rome a lot. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're getting a lot of the same characteristics. People, there, there's a big polarization of the parties. There's political gridlock. People start defecting and the divide happens. And then people start grabbing for, for control through fascism or socialism. Mm -hmm. And eventually that tension can't be held up any longer and it just yeah. splits down the middle. Yeah. Because I believe Rome, before Rome crashed, and I should know more about this, but I don't. But anyway, they split, mm -hmm. right? So they tried to live in two different but unique states. Mm -hmm. And that was like before shit fell apart. Yeah, them. so we can see that this is being sped up by foreign intelligence through social media. Obviously, like, it's not a conspiracy theory that Russia and China are, you know, infiltrating Facebook and things like that. We saw Cambridge Analytica and, and all that. But if you look at Russia, I forget when the KGB had, you know what the balkanization is? Mm -hmm. They, they're basically trying to do this plan where they want the Balkan states for the US where they divide us so much that the states want us to see them become their own countries so that the United States is no longer the strongest military. Unified. It's you know just broken apart. So wow. yeah, you'll so they're you can watch. they're collaborating with China to make that happen. 
who knows? They're pretty smart in their the way that they're doing their psychological stuff. You can find their old plans, and they're kind of they're they're doing it. So there's been documents, strategic documents leaked about how to divide the U.S. apart. Right, psychologically. There's a concept, political science concept called the cargo cult, um, which is like a plane went over an island and dropped a box of supplies and an indigenous tribe saw the box and got the supplies and they thought a god dropped them. So they keep doing whatever they were doing at the time the box dropped to try and get the gods to drop another one. And what they say is that right now with Trump, it's a reverse cargo cult where the people know it's fake, that the box and the stuff isn't real and the guy that dropped it is bullshit, but they are still feeding into it because they don't like the system. And it's kind of um, something that Putin did in Russia, which we can see is like playing out here with populism. So it's kind of interesting to, to see these concepts manifesting and then people to say that like the Russian thing isn't real when it's like no we can we can watch if you learn Russian history and intelligence and stuff it gets pretty creepy of anybody doing it, it would be that yeah yeah but um uh, there are people actively trying to fight this stuff and we're seeing it get bigger and bigger do you think that's playing out through the media or through it's, social media exactly it's all of it so there's a scientist i forget her name she's started a algorithm ethics guidelines and she's going to facebook and all these places and trying to get them to abide by certain guidelines for for uh, algorithms, obviously, like something that I say is enraged equals engaged. It's to get pay per click and all that. You the best way to get people to start typing everything. is to get angry. You know, so the algorithms have just automatically just started to Favorite. put yep the stuff at the top that's going to get people pissed off on in people in their own echo chambers. You're going to see stuff like. Oh, liberal does this, or you know, conservative, blah 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 does this, and people are just being fueled by it, and it's fueling our economy. So we need to rethink how we, you know, do this stuff because, you know, Facebook has done psychological manipulative studies and stuff to yeah. where they put negative things on someone's feed, and then you start to see their statuses turn depressing or positive, vice versa. You know, it's like they have serious power over us wow. and our attention and you know the dying media cnn fox news all these companies they were dying before trump was president and now they're hanging on by a thread so trump is good for left-wing media and right-wing media and obviously bad for the country you know for us to obsess over him and focus on the issues that are dividing us rather than figuring out how we can come together is like it's good for them and obviously horrible for us because it's going to dictate elections it's going to cause violence you know yeah, it's going to cause divide which it i mean is. the same people we we could easily get along with our neighbor if, if mm -hmm. the set and setting were right yeah so if you don't mind me asking like where do you stand politically are you like independent or yeah yeah. yeah, I am of the thought of, you know, 
looking at data and having a dialogue with people on all sides, looking at what all the media is talking about and coming to my own conclusion, and then being willing to change my conclusion based on new data, you know, I think that's the healthiest. Yeah. And it gets rid of, you know, the conflict. Yeah, I've asked this question for a long time, like, why isn't there just like a moderate, smart, millennial mentality candidate who's come up at like an, an Andrew Young or mm-hmm. somebody who's just a little bit more, they, they care about business and try to remove red tape for mm-hmm. business, but they allow gay people to get married or they allow people to identify as whatever gender. Like mm-hmm. it, it seems so simple to me, but when you talk about the sensationalization and the polarizing of, you know, pissing people off for clicks, essentially, mm-hmm. it all makes sense that the divide is ultimately favorable for the people who have super PACs behind them. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's really no uh, financial benefit for the boys who are in control right now mm-hmm. to have a, a modest and moderate person who would just lead peacefully. Right. Um, and, I a, think, and appeal and be diplomatic to both sides. Yeah, I think those people in the short run, it doesn't benefit them. But in the long run, economically, it's going to work but you know america is driven on fuel of coffee and you know growing for the shareholders and all that so it's like i forget what the study was but obviously if society functions better i mean it's it you don't really need a study you can see growth in multiple ways um i'm huge on andrew yang i wish he was president um but I'm, he's going to be, I listened to his podcast, he's going to be hopefully the tech guy in Biden's cabinet. You can look at UBI from an abstract standpoint to sound like it can work. If people don't have to scratch and survive, then, you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're not hungry, you're not going to go rob somebody for food. You know, if you have time to focus on what you are good at because everyone has something they're you know innately attracted to and talents and things like that then you have people who somebody who's stuck working at mcdonald's just to get by or take care of their kids or whatever if they can have a foundation then they can potentially be the next great doctor or you know marketing whatever whatever you know it's like if people can breathe, they can... Yeah, just getting them out of a panic and reactive state mm-hmm. of mind. I do agree with it, and I love Andrew Yang's case for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if I think it's that simple. I think people need uh, mental retraining, too, right, right. To, to even understand reactivity versus exactly. proactivity. But let me ask you this. Do you think that we should pay more taxes? Have you seen what Yang wants to do that? It's been like a year and a half since um, I listened to him. So VAT tax is one. And then obviously... What's the VAT tax? Most other countries have it. It's a tax, I think, at the end of goods. He's, he proposed like 12%, which is even lower than... Than your um, Than, yeah, like Europe. And then taxing corporations that use AI, which um, take jobs and stuff like that. So, you know, a robot tax, which uh, Bill Gates proposed too. Because robots... They, they're inevitable. You know, your robots don't need sick days. They don't need daycare. They, they don't make mistakes and they can work t- 20, longer than, yeah. yeah. 
an employee. So of course that's going to happen. So let's tax the robots that are going to be taking the jobs and funnel that money into the people who are losing their jobs. I mean, it seems pretty simple to me. If you're surgical about it, you can increase the tax liability for companies that have fatter margins, essentially. Mm -hmm. For companies like mine and yours, uh, increasing tax would really be a backbreaking blow on our growth. Well, it would tax it would tax the specific, like the AI. So yeah, if, the problem areas. So if you weren't using, or the you change know, areas, I guess. like whatever thing that would be taxed, then you it wouldn't really hit you, you know. But it's like if you're using something that takes the job of a human, you know, tax it. And of course, those things should give you exponential growth enough that that tax isn't, you know, correlating to taking away profit, you know? Like by yeah. using AI and stuff, that should build your profit that much more. You know, you can do yeah, the calculations. In theory, you can buy a $5,000 machine and that's the cost of your employee salary right. for a it month. Makes, it makes it, it's uh, investment back in like a year or two, you know? Yeah, eventually there'll be software that can do good copywriting and I won't have to pay for a copywriter mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the company won't. But I guess in, in general, do you think that free markets do self-regulate or no? I don't know. I've, I've kind of been trying to extrapolate this between like Keynesian and everything. Um, I would say that the, the words escaping me, what's a libertarian, ideals personally if the world revolved around me and and should benefit me i would be libertarian but that's not way the way that the world works mm -hmm. you would say that the you know the hand should adjust the market naturally but humans are not rational it that's the assumption is that humans are rational number one and number two that the market will naturally adjust and everything, but they're not taking in the correlation that humans will always find a way to cheat the system and work around the system. And you can look at like any company that has like quality control people, um, the people that come in and like check and make sure that everything is up to standard and stuff. That's a completely different work day than a normal work day. They're like, oh, we got, you know, we got the people coming in from corporate to look, to look at everything, everyone, you know, be on your P's and Q's. So there's like the outward rules that you should follow. And then there's the rules that everyone just follows. You know, if you look at the economy that way, it's an ever-changing and ever-moving system that humans innately look to thwart because you in my personal philosophy, I do that. It's work smarter, not harder. I find, I look at the rules and find the ways to bend them to make things easier, faster, smoother. And, and sometimes circumventing systems, which is in essence breaking the rules. Right. There's a better way to go about that. Even Bill Gates said, I love to hire a lazy developer. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it was Bill Gates, but one of those guys uh, said, I love to hire a lazy developer because they'll find a a way to get it done with the least work. Exactly. So yeah, that's the way I personally work is I learn all the rules and then I learn which ones are fat and cut the fat, you know? And I think when you take that into account with the economy, people are going to find ways in every single industry. And that's where you find accidents that happen. And that's where you find the, you know, 
the crash and all that is those people found something that was like on the fence, shady, but still legal. Let's put this through, you know, and, a lot and of that here in LA. exactly. So the market is not perfect. It's not going to balance itself out with without explosions or, you know, devastation to the environment or the yeah. economy or whatever, you know. So I think regulation is important because at the end of the day, we will adapt to the rules, but also at the same time, bureaucracy and all that, like a lot of it's a waste. So there's like a fine balance like between each one. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really thoughtful and rational uh, explanation. I appreciate it. Now I'm obviously asking these things because I'm wrestling with the same concepts. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to pay more out of my own pocket on this. You know, I work probably twice as much as most of my professional friends. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to have my income cut into so much that I, it, it would be more favorable for me to go work for somebody mm -hmm. than to be an entrepreneur and to create 15 jobs for the economy. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to like strike that balance. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, I, I can definitely empathize with you and I, I don't even know my stance 100% at mm -hmm. this point. I think all of us are questioning our stance right now. Mm -hmm. But when we think about COVID and how, you know, we've seen a lot of lives get fucked up right in front of our eyes. How do you, you know, to close this off, how do you recommend that we go forward to be best positioned if there is a big divide or if there is a big crash? Like, how, how are you preparing to get, you know, positioned for that? And how do you recommend other people kind of get in the right state if you've lost your job or if you're afraid of you know your stability right now for me personally i'm building up new skills personally you know i'm, I'm learning python um and going back through my old textbooks for finance wow. just to um you know make sure that i can be prepared for something to pivot and adapt you know um, and then applying the knowledge that you do have into, you know, what's going on so that you can adapt. So it good, sounds like a lot of learning. But yeah, a good quote, Nyota Musashi says, like, once you know the way broadly, you can see it in all things, um, which is like, Love that. When, you, when you have your thing that you know, take that lens and put it on everything else. Like, if you... If you know, you know, golf or basketball or something, think of anything new in terms of that. And you can start to see trends just based off of, you know, that's what that's the way you think where, you know, that's kind of what I do. I put my psychological lens and, and that on things and you can kind of interpret where you want to go, where you think the world is going and, you know, adapt. And I think that is something that's important. Put that on your business, put that on yourself for your own skills. I don't know if you know Seth Godin's uh, Lynchpin. That's a good book about kind of- I haven't read that one. That process of you are, you are the thing that you need to market. So it's about making yourself marketable and a business so that you, know, you, can, you can sell yourself because that's kind of, what I'm doing on the side to supplement is consulting, you know? So find your skills, adapt them, find your things that you can improve on, build on them, and um, just watch, watch the markets and everything and find the problem that needs a solution because you can adapt and 
you can see something that you know is is the diamond in the rough that you wouldn't have seen had this disaster not happen. But you have to be on the lookout. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. And obviously not sitting and sulking and telling the story that you're screwed and you know that you lost your job, you're not a man anymore and drinking and all that kind of stuff, you know, watch the story. Yeah. Because ultimately to circle back where we get to, the story is the hero's journey of the Phoenix rising out of the ashes. You know, this is the perfect time to tell that narrative. And the world's burning down literally. Yeah. It's like orange outside right <laughs> yeah. now. It's kind of scary. So one last question for you, Patrick. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had $20,000 in your bank right now, would you be investing that in another company? Would you invest that in your company? Or would you invest in your learning? Or would you save it and try to accumulate more as much as you can at all costs? Well, I'd say for the sake of the uh, example, that's a really low number. I would definitely save that money at this time, which is what most people are doing. You know, most people are saving, but let's say that that was disposable income. Me personally, I invest in my education and optimization a lot, especially during a time like this where markets are volatile and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were going crazy on the markets and then this past week, people are freaking out, you know? And then some meme yesterday that said uh, high school students are returning back to school and the Robin Hood bulls are, you know, dropping out and the market's plummeting. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's crazy. People think that it's like pride comes before fall. People think that, you know, they can ride this wave of the markets doing something completely irrational because we got a bunch of people on Robin Hood that are doing emotional gambling. Yeah. yeah. But like buying Boeing and I think now's the time to go inward, reflect, focus on yourself, where you where your pain points are, where you need to grow, where you need to fix, save, and adapt, you know, sharpen your iron. You know, this is like going into the cave, the monk going, Buddha going into the Mm -hmm. the cave, Jesus going into the desert. This is that, a funny thing is, uh, I just learned quarantine comes from the word 40. And if you look like, you know, 40 days, 40 40 years, all those, the the Jews going in the desert for 40 years, it's like- Four score. You can look at it like that. This is our time to go on that journey and, you know, such a weird correlation. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reason I said 20,000 is because a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of people I know have lost their job and that might be their nest egg. Exactly. So save anyone smart. If you have money to save and you're not hanging on by a thread, save that money and don't gamble it right now because don't, who knows? Don't download Robin Hood. Who knows if your job is going to be here, your business is going to be here, whatever, and what's going to happen. We just need to sit and watch and prepare right now. Awesome. Great answer. I, just one last remark to tie this off. A very interesting conversion rate optimization. I would say I'm probably pretty advanced at it, but that there's you know definitely further I can go with it. So I looked up on Udemy and I found a course for literally $12.50. Mm-hmm. That's advanced conversion rate optimization for like brands from Coca-Cola and Disney, all these like big brands. So oh, wow. anyway, like you can do it for cheap. You can torrent it. It just takes the discipline, right? So 
Anyway, Patrick, this has been awesome, dude. I, I know that you have given your all to this, and I really appreciate it. So I want to acknowledge you for for bringing such a a powerful presence to this interview, and now I look forward to learning more about you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It was fun. All right, my brother. See you around.